For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so those also now disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him, for of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that you are holy, and it is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness that we can be called saints, the holy ones, and stand in your presence. We pray now that as we read this portion of your holy word, that you would make us even more holy in our daily lives. Give us understanding and wisdom and faith and obedience so that you might be glorified. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Christians approach the end times different ways. We call this study of end times or last things eschatology. And you know, some Christians can be rather dogmatic. Maybe they have charts tucked away in their Bibles and they can pull it out and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a secret rapture or there's going to be this, there's going to be that. And, and in fact, you have people on the internet, on TV today, on the radio teaching that, hey, we are seeing prophecy fulfilled in our very midst today. And then you have some perhaps that are more apathetic. They, uh, they just don't see the use of it or how it's relevant to us today. And when it comes to the timing of the return of Christ, sometimes we, we can divide ourselves into one of several categories. You know, there's this thing called the thousand years in Revelation 20, the millennium. And we talk about the return of Christ in reference to that. Will Jesus come before the thousand years? And so some people say, I'm premillennial. Some of us, uh, myself included, say, well, Jesus is going to come after the millennium. And so we are post-millennial. Others are more amillennial. It doesn't mean they deny it. They just say, well, Christ is reigning now and he reigns in our hearts. And then there are those who are pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out, and it's none of my concern. And so you've heard that. Some of you have heard that before. 
Well, whatever your position is on the end times, you're, if you're dogmatic or apathetic or you just don't know, uh, one thing we can be certain about from our text this morning, I think, is that God is not done with Israel, ethnic, national Israel. And as we talk about this this morning, I just want you to know we're not going to go down what is called the dispensational track. Uh, We've talked about that a little bit as we've gone through Romans chapter 11. But I do believe that one day before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a uh, massive, thorough conversion of the Jewish people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of this text that I believe that. Remember what the Apostle Paul has been doing at this part in his letter to these Christians at Rome. In chapters 9 through 11, he's talking about the problem of Israel's unbelief. His brethren, according to the flesh, he begins to talk about that in chapter 9, so that by the time we get to chapter 11 and verse 2, he's returning to that question. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And he begins to take that topic up once again after talking about election and and the means of converting men, preaching and gospel preachers and that sort of thing. In chapter 11 and verse 12, we saw that he at least hints at a future conversion of Israel, national Israel. In chapter 11 and verse 12, he says, now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And so he hints at it there in verses 16 through 24. Remember, he provides that analogy of the olive tree, certain branches that did not produce fruit, that is, unbelieving Israel. They were broken off, and the unnatural branches, the Gentiles were grafted in so that they would bear fruit. And we saw that. And so, again, in verses 23 and 24, he implies that there is this future for national Israel. Verse 23, he says, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, that is, the unbelieving Israelites, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, speaking to the Gentiles there, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And so then he begins verse 25 and following. The implication is that Israel, ethnic national Israel, is the natural branch of this olive tree that God has cultivated throughout the centuries. And it is more natural for them to be grafted back in to that tree than it is for an unnatural branch, the Gentiles, to be grafted in. God did uh, graft in the unnatural branch, the Gentiles. You and I are living proof of that today. And so again, the implication is, is that there is this future for Israel if they do not continue in their unbelief. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning under three headings, uh, three things concerning what he says there in verse 25. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. 
And so this morning, we're going to talk about three things surrounding this blindness, this present, current day blindness on the part of unbelieving national Israel, the Jewish people. And so as we've seen then, our first point is a reminder. The first thing we ought to note here is that national Israel's current blindness is partial and it is temporary. It is partial and it is temporary. That's there in verses 25 and part of 26. 26. So note Paul's desire here. And, and when Paul says, I do not desire, remember he's an apostle called by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned by him. He's speaking in place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is God's word. It is Christ himself by his spirit speaking to us. And so Christ himself does not want them or us today to be ignorant of what he says here. I do not desire that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And let me just say that learning is part of the Christian life. Christ has not called us to be ignorant. He does not want us to remain babes in Christ. He wants us to grow. In fact, in Peter it says, you are to grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to remain newborn babes going after milk. No, we're, as Hebrews says, we're to mature, we're to eat solid meat. And so we are to grow and to learn, and there's this lost art called reading. In our day and time, we pull up our phones, we Google something, hey, I want to know about this, let me watch a YouTube video, and any teenager can, no offense, any teenager can put the younger kids can put together a YouTube video. Some are done really well, some not so well. So you have to consider the source. Remember the Reformation ad font? Go to the source, go to the fount, go to the original source. Well, we go to the Word of God. And so I just want to put in a plug for reading quality, time tested Christian books. And of course, the Bible above those. In fact, just so you know, the word disciple, mathetes, means what? Learner. We are all in this, who belong to Christ, we are in the school of Christ. And the goal is that relationship with him and perfection and holiness. And so what is this mystery? He, he, we'll talk about that here in, in just a moment. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. This, this isn't like a puzzle that God has put in our laps and we have to figure it out. The word mystery here refers to something that would not be known unless God otherwise revealed it to us. And so in 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 1, Paul said, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are stewards of that which God has revealed, His Word which has been inscripturated in the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. And why has God revealed this mystery to us? Well, in general, we talk about that which God has revealed. For instance, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, For the secret things are for the Lord, but that which He has revealed is for us and our children. I think it says in our children's children, that we may do all that is written in this 
law. In Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul prays that the Christians there will be filled with the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His will, so that they, they might please God. But we can't please God until our sins are forgiven. And so there is this mystery that Paul calls the gospel. He calls the gospel a mystery in Ephesians 1, 9. It is the mystery of His will. As we saw last time, we see why this particular mystery in verse 25 has been revealed. He says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And so he's talking to these Christian Gentiles. He is expounding the future of Israel, God's plan for national Israel, so that the believing Gentiles, that's us, do not become arrogant and prideful towards the unbelieving Israelites and Jews in our time. What do you have that you have not received? In fact, you can be broken off if, if you're unbelieving. So let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so that's the message there. That's why this particular mystery about Israel's future has been revealed. And also, let me just say, since we're talking about the future God has revealed certain things about the future of this world, of the state, of this planet, of the future, about Christ's kingdom. For different reasons. One of those is hope. That we might have an understanding that, that God is in control, that He is sovereign. And as Christ said, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this isn't a Jim Jones hope. If you know anything about the 70s and that false teacher of that cult, he led a group of people down to South America and he said certain things were going to happen. And uh, well, they drank cyanide mixed with Kool-Aid and they, he convinced them to commit suicide, mass suicide. And so we talk about drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, if you have a false view of the future, you can drink the the Kool-Aid, or you can go in some weird bunker somewhere and put on your sneakers and die, or you can follow a cult all the way to hell. Um, in fact, that's one of the things that uh, some cults, many cults have in common is a perverted view of eschatology, and so they end up on a compound. They practice socialism and do weird things, and so it is important as to what we believe. Now, we don't know it all. We, we, we can't be arrogant in our study of eschatology, but we look at God's Word and we see what He says, and, and He's given it to us for a reason. And there are other reasons we won't go into this morning, but we need to have hope. So then, what is this mystery? He talks about it. We've, we've hinted at it. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of it. Well, it's there in verse 25 that, that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so blindness, in part, it's not complete. It's not every single Israelite. Remember, Paul said, I myself am an Israelite. And he talked about in Romans 9, Romans 10, I think, as well, 11, that God is working on this principle of election. That even in Paul's day, in our day, there is a remnant within unbelieving Israel, I should say within the nation of Israel, there is a remnant that does believe in Jesus Christ. 
But he says here, blindness has happened. Spiritual dullness, unbelief has happened in part. It's not every single Israelite. And it has happened. It's in the passive voice. It's happened upon them. And that goes back to Romans 9, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will harden whom I will harden. doesn't mean God puts unbelief in their hearts, but God uses certain means to harden one's heart. The Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It also says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's not the author of sin. He doesn't cause us to sin. But in his wisdom, in his plan, he allows us to go through these things. And in that sense, he, he hardens. And then if you look, it, it says to Israel. I think it is obvious he is talking about ethnic Israel at this point. I mean, the church of Jesus Christ is not blind, right? We've been given sight. We have spiritual insight. He's talking about unbelieving Israel. And so he says blindness in part has happened to Israel. And we could say this, therefore... The current blindness and failure on the part of national Israel to receive Jesus Christ is in part. It is partial and it is temporary, that is, until, he says, the fullness of the Gentiles. Make sense? Okay. So then what is this fullness of the Gentiles? He's already hinted at this when he talked about the possibility of the fullness of Israel. That's back in verse 12. We read it earlier. How much more their fullness, Israel's fullness. And so, this fullness is in contrast with the idea of the remnant that he's already talked about. That small portion within Israel, that small portion that has repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who are Christians within national Israel, that remnant. So this full, the fullness is in contrast with that, in that he is referring to a number. In verse 5, he refers to national Israel, and he says they there are currently experiencing a believing remnant. And yet, as we've seen, there will one day be this fullness of Israel. So, to uh, refer to the way John Murray put it, in verse 25, when Paul talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, this fullness will be in the future, and it refers to a number. Call me Captain Obvious. And so, what is this number? It's the remaining number, the full number of all the Gentiles who will be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and thus come into the church of Jesus Christ. Just remind you of these wonderful promises in the Old Testament that talk about this. I mean, it began at least with Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3 where God says, Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed through Abraham all the nations, all the Gentiles will be blessed through the seed of Abraham, through Christ who would come. Psalm 72, 
in verse 11 about this Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It says, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve, that is, worship him. Daniel 17, or Daniel 7 and verse 14, it talks about the resurrected Christ there. And it says, to him was given glory, a kingdom, and dominion that all peoples and nations and languages should serve or worship him. Of course, in Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, this is amazing. It says, in the last days... And the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established, and all nations shall flow to it. And of course, there's the picture in the second Psalm in verse 8. The Father is telling the Son, He's telling His Messiah. He says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations to you for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession." And so you turn to Matthew 13, where Jesus teaches about the kingdom. He compares the kingdom to a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But yet, after it sprouts and it grows, it grows into the plant that is the largest, and it overshadows all those near it. So all the birds of the air, all the Gentiles come and flock to it. He says the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman put into the dough. And basically, it eventually took over the dough. That's what leaven does. Yeast does that, and, and so the picture is this kingdom that starts off small, but eventually takes over the whole lump of dough, and that is the whole world. And so as Paul talks about Israel here, we see that Israel's present blindness, their spiritual blindness is partial, it is temporary, and this blindness will end upon the completion of the Gentiles' salvation. Now, I don't know when that is. Neither do you or the guys on TV. But we know what it says here. In God's timing, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, that blindness will go away. And so the, I've already answered it a little bit. What, what about Israel? What will happen to her? Well, that's the second thing that Paul talks about here. And it is this, that national Israel's current and partial blindness will be replaced by a thorough conversion to Jesus Christ. This is in verses 26 and 27. Look at verse 26. He says, and so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. What does that mean? I had to write a paper on this in seminary in our hermeneutics class, you know, the science of biblical interpretation. And, and the reason is, is because this is a, a debated text. What does it mean? And it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy it. Reading and studying it, applying these rules and seeing where I end up. And, uh, well, you'll see here where I've ended up. Basically, there are three main views as to verse 26 and its meaning, all Israel shall be saved. The first view is um, this, all Israel means all elect Jews and Gentiles throughout history. This was the view of John Calvin. 
and it's not as popular today, but the meaning would be all of the elect shall be saved. And so, you know, in Galatians 6 and verse 16, Paul there refers to the church of Jesus Christ as the Israel of God. That is true. We are the Israel of God. We've already seen that. We've been grafted into the Israel of God. And so men like Calvin who take that view, they say, well, all Israel, the church will be saved. All of the elect will be saved indeed. That is the way they understand it. And so all Israel means in that system, that understanding, the sum total of the elect. After all, Paul has been expounding the doctrine of election, right? But I don't think that's the biblical view as we will see as we talk about these other two views. I think that will debunk this one just the natural reading of the text and what Paul is doing and how we define this word Israel in its natural context. There's a second view, and it is that all Israel refers to the total number of the elect Jews. Stay with me this morning. All Israel refers to the total number of the elect Jews. Uh, The good prolific Reformed commentator William Hendrickson held, held this view. And the meaning then would be all of Israel's remnants would be saved. And it's based on the placement of the word Israel and the, the word Gentile in this text. And basically he says this, he says that if the fullness used here must be interpreted in the unlimited sense with the Gentiles. This must also be true for all Israel. In other words, he is trying to be consistent with the terminology of the context, and I would say that is commendable to try and do that. He's trying to be faithful. He is saying that if we treat the fullness of the Gentiles one way, we must treat the fullness of Israel in the same way. However, Hendrickson's argument fails to recognize the chronological sequence of events. The climax of the apostles' argument, the similarity of Israel's receiving and rejection in verses 12 and 16, and I think employs an arbitrary use of the word Israel. I mean, so if you take his view, in verse 25, the word Israel has a different meaning than it does in verse 26. And how is it climactic? Because when you look at Paul's flow here, it is climactic. He's been building his case. He's been dropping little hints left and right, left and right. And then he says, verse 26, and so this is the point. All Israel shall be saved. That's the answer to the question he asked multiple times in this passage. And so to say, well, all of the elect Jews will be saved, that's that's glorious. But it just doesn't follow the context, I don't think. And so what's the third view? The third view is that all Israel here refers to the mass of national Israel preceding the second coming of Christ. 
that when Paul says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved, he's referring to the mass of national ethnic Israel just prior to the time of Christ's second coming, that there will be a massive, at some point in time, there will be a massive conversion of national Jews to Jesus. This is probably the most popular view, historically. Um, And so this view teaches that in verses 26 and 27, that Paul uses the word Israel not to refer to the church, but ethnic or national Israel, the unconverted Jews. In other words, there is a glorious future for remaining or there's a glorious future remaining for national Israel. And so let's quickly look at some of these terms here. What is meant by Israel there in verse uh, 26? Well, throughout the context of the letter, and in particular chapters 9 through 11, Paul has been dealing with the rejection of his national ethnic brethren. In contrast to the Gentile nations, I mean, go look at verse 25. That's what's going on there. He's contrasting unbelieving Israel with the Gentiles. So it makes sense that in verse 26, he is referring to unbelieving Israel. That all unbelieving Israel at one point will be saved. It's kind of like the days in Genesis chapter 1. If you look at it in its normal historical context, in that it is Hebrew narrative, a day means a day. Not millions of years. And so here in its natural context, it means national ethnic Israel. Look at the word all. He says, so all Israel shall be saved. Now the word all in the scriptures need not refer to every single person. Um, if, if, if I'm talking to uh, my wife and we're talking about my son's baseball team and, uh, well, um, I, I say, hey, they're all going to be there. The word all in that context doesn't mean every single person. It means all of the, who, who are members of the team. And so in the scriptures, the word all can take that meaning. In fact, in one place in the Gospels, John, I think it is, it says all the world has gone after him. And uh, it doesn't mean every person on the earth. And by the way, the Bible in multiple places in 2 Corinthians 5.15 It says that Christ died for all. Well, if Christ died for every single person who has and will exist, what kind of Savior is He? Because there are people in hell. No, He he died for, Isaiah 53, the many. He died, Ephesians 5, for His bride, the church. He lays down His life, John 10, for the sheep. And the Bible says He died for all. So we must conclude all of the elect. And so my point is, when it says all Israel, it doesn't have to mean every single Israelite who will be alive at the time at which this will take place. And so considering the context, the salvation of Israel must be corresponding in proportion with their failure, their trespass, their unbelief, their breaking off. And so the mass of Israel rejected Christ, not all of them, 
while the remnant believed. And so the mass of Israel was broken off, and thus the mass of Israel shall be saved. That's the understanding of this third position I'm trying to explain to you, that the mass of Israel will be saved when it says all Israel shall be saved at that time. And so what does it mean to be saved because men take up this word? Well, the context makes it clear, right? John Stott, he talks about verse 26 and verse 27, and he says this is a scriptural potpourri. Kids, I don't know if you know what that is. In the 80s, that was so popular. My mom had it everywhere. A bunch of dried flowers or something all over the house to, to, to make the house smell good. And so it's like a hodgepodge, a mixture. And he says, well, this is a spiritual, a scriptural potpourri here in verses 26 and 27. It's from Isaiah chapter 59, from Jeremiah 31 probably, and Isaiah 27. And so when you look at these these verses, he talks in verse 26 about the deliverer, that is the Savior, will come out of Zion. That's God's spiritual people, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Verse 27, for this is my covenant. With them. That's the covenant of grace in Jeremiah. When I take away their sins. And so these verses refer to the coming of Jesus Christ at his first coming, turning away ungodliness, away from Jacob, and establishing his covenant, thus taking away their sins. It's obvious that the salvation about which Paul speaks here when he says, All Israel shall be saved, is talking about salvation from sin. And the only way we're saved from our sins is through the Savior, Jesus, Matthew 121. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so Jesus is going to save Israel. I don't believe he's going to establish a literal physical kingdom with the physical throne and physical Jerusalem one day where he will literally reign from there a thousand years. No. But these Israelites that will be saved will be members of not the Jerusalem below, but the Jerusalem that is above. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul has prayed For the nation of Israel, in chapter 10 and verse 1, he has stated that the conversion of the Gentiles will lead national Israel to envy. That's in chapter 11 and verse 14. And here he promises that one day Israel, all Israel, will be saved. And that will happen one day in the future once the complete number of the Gentiles comes into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so quickly, let me summarize, maybe not so quickly, but I know what time it is. Let me summarize these remaining verses in 28 through 32. I think we could summarize what we've seen by saying, Therefore, in the end, at the end of the day, or at the end of time, God will have shown mercy, His marvelous mercy to all types of men, Jew and Gentile. So Paul here in these verses 28 through 32, he talks about the Israelites being both enemies and at the same time time being beloved. He says they are enemies 
concerning the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They are enemies, he says, the unbelieving Israelites. They are enemies of God for your sake. They are under God's wrath for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, just as all men are under God's wrath for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And because, of course, their own personal sins and their connection, their union with the first Adam, the Adam in the garden, original sin. And he says they are enemies. But he also says concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. He, he refers to what we talked about last time, that, that they were grafted in after the patriarchs, the fathers, because of what God promised to the fathers, which began really with Abraham. So God made this covenant with Abraham, and he continued that promise through his sons, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the patriarchs grew into the nation of Israel. And so God does have a special place for the nation of Israel. As he's already said in 9.6, not all Israel is Israel. We understand that. And so this is for the sake of the fathers, the covenant of grace that he made to the fathers, the patriarchs, probably beginning with Abraham. And so I can put it like this, in accordance with their national election and their ancestors, the patriarchs, the ones with whom the covenant was made and the promises given, God loves them as a people and will bring them to salvation in Christ. And so he says there uh, that the gifts, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. God cannot lie. He does not lie. Then he says that they are objects of mercy. In the remaining verses, verse 30 he says, for as you were once disobedient to God. By the way, Paul never shies away from reminding Christians who they were before they came to Christ. You who are dead in your sins and trespasses. You who are disobedient to God. We need to remember that. You were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. He's already talked about this, right? Acts 13, remember that? Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. They reject the gospel. And so in Acts 13, 46, it says this. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God, the gospel, should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles began coming into the church of Jesus Christ and they continue to this day. So in verse 31, he says, Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Remember earlier in the chapter, he says that the unbelieving Jews will be provoked by the Gentiles being converted to Christ. Eventually, they will see what the Gentiles have in Christ, joy, peace, patience, all of these things, being the, the children of the living God, partakers of the commonwealth of Israel. 
They will see that. They will be jealous and envious, and then that will provoke them to consider that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They will come to Christ through that. So he's summarizing what he's already said here in this verse. It's like this ping-pong match of God's mercy. God shows it to these people. Then he comes over here and he shows it to these people. And now he's going to come back and show it to these people. The Jews, the Gentiles, and now the Jews again. And so there's that summary. Well, if you look in verse 32, he says, uh, For God has committed them all to disobedience. Again, the word all there doesn't mean every single person because Paul himself is a Christian. But it's talking about the majority Uh, For God has committed them all to disobedience. He's committed them. The word means to be bound, to be in prison, to be shut up. He's, He's confined them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And so the one way of escape then is through Christ and his gospel. That he might have mercy on all. What is mercy? Paul loves this word. Some synonyms are loving kindness, goodness, pity, grace, favor. At the heart of the mercy of God is the love of God. And of course, that is unmerited. It is undeserved. David said, after he committed adultery and murder, Psalm 51, 5, he prayed to God. He says what? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing, your steadfast love. Mercy, then, is expressed by God to sinners in that he does not treat certain sinners the way their sins deserve. God has had mercy on you and me in that he has not treated us as our sins deserve. He has had pity and compassion upon us. And so recently, uh, some children were trying to get my my wife's attention and my, my youngest's attention. And so they threw a rock. I don't know if they were throwing the rock at them. The rock hit my car, put a dent in my bumper, scratched the paint, and $150 later, I have it repaired. I told these children, I said, look, one of, the, one of them confessed, eventually confessed. We don't know why they did it. They could have hit someone on the head, hurt someone really badly. And uh, the child was like, I made a bad choice. I said, yes, you did. And I said, I'm thankful that I no longer worship my cars. I've had, y'all know I like cars, Mustangs, okay, um, and there was a time where I had, a, I had a Celica GTS, 85 Celica GTS, it was awesome back then when I was 16, and I worshiped my cars, I said, you better, you better be glad I don't worship my cars, I said, I'm a new person, and you know what, God tells me to forgive others as he in Christ has forgiven me, I had mercy on them by the grace of God, now, when it comes to God's mercy, it's different, isn't it? Because the offense is greater, and here's the the human element, Um, I still struggle with showing mercy, don't you, sometimes? Because if those kids were to do something else, I would probably be triggered. But the offense to God is, is much greater. He's God. He is holy. He is the Holy One. We are sinful. We are 
uh, a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah says. We are rebellious. We are wicked. And his justice demands that our sins be dealt with accordingly. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Our catechism says, What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse in this life and the life to come. That is hell forever. That's what your sins deserve. That's what your little white lie deserves. That's what taking the dessert when mommy and daddy told you not to, that's what your sin deserves, God's wrath and curse in hell forever. Even the little, quote, white lie. But God hasn't left us there, has he? Even though he, ha- he must punish our sin, well, that's why he sent Jesus. Romans 3 has already talked about that. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It is through Jesus that the wrath of God was satisfied fully for our sins. And so when we come to Christ and, and are made right with him, with God, and we sin after that, we confess it, we ask for God's forgiveness, and it's not like that God just, he's triggered. No, his love is steadfast and forever. In Psalm 85 and verse 10, it says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And where did they kiss? At the cross. God took your guilt and put it on Jesus. God the Father poured out his wrath on his son and turned his back towards him. And so we enjoy God's mercy. And so there's this future mercy for the Jews that will come through the provocation of the Gentiles' faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe in addition to that, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. There will be the last day, the judgment to follow the separation of the sheep from the goats, and, of course, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so when you think about this great plan of God, what should be our reaction? Well, it's there in the following verses, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he goes on, and he rejoices, and he praises God. And so do you know the mercy of God through Christ? Do you know what it means to be forgiven? And do you rejoice because you have been forgiven and experience that mercy? We see here Israel's present blindness is partial and temporary, that their partial blindness is replaced by a will be replaced by a thorough conversion to Jesus Christ. And in the end, God will have shown mercy to all types of men, women, and children from among every tongue, tribe, and nation. Amen. Let's pray.